0: You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Tomball, Texas. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org. For those of you who don't know, my name is Pastor Barry, and I have the privilege of serving as one of the elders here. And um, today I I get the privilege of of pinch hitting for Jeff, who gets a well-deserved break. And I love it when he can just come and just be here. And just be amongst his friends and family and, and just be, be ministered to instead of always ministering to us. So, uh, before we jump into our text, I do want to take just a second. And on, on behalf of all of the elders and our wives, I want to thank you for the great privilege um, that we had of attending the, the Acts 29 global gathering this week in Nashville. Uh, it, was a, it was an amazing time of, of, of being challenged, of being inspired, of being refreshed. Spiritually, as well as as well as growing in our friendships to each other and our, and unity as leaders and families, you know we don't ever want to take for granted that this is only because of God's loving kindness and the generosity of this church that we are able to enjoy the blessing that was this week. So so on behalf of all of us, thank you, thank you. I guess on, a, on another side note, you might want to say a little prayer for the uh, for the other elders and wives because you know having spent this week under some of the most gifted preachers on the planet. Um, today will be somewhat of a precipitous plunge back to reality for them, I'm afraid. But, you know, anyway, get what you get. And you don't throw a fit, right? Um, so today we're going to continue the series that Jeff started last week on the hard sayings of Jesus. And the text that we're going to be examining today is Mark 8, 34 through 38. And I can tell you, I have been both excited and and Deeply burdened in my study of this passage. It's, it's weighty, but it is absolutely, I think, one of the cornerstone passages in all of Scripture. And it is immensely relevant to us in 21st century suburban America. So if you have your Bible or device, open it up to Mark 8, and we're going to begin reading in verse 34. Or if you use the pew Bible in front of you, you just turn to page 895. So as is our custom, if you're able, please stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Calling the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation the Son of Man will also be ashamed of Him when He comes in the glory of His Father with the holy angels. Pray with me. Father, Your your Word is indeed living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. So God, today, would you would you use the penetrating words of this text to reveal the thoughts and intentions of our hearts? God, would you speak through me today to encourage, to challenge, to convict each of us for our good and your glory? It's your holy name I pray, amen. You may be seated. So uh, I think what we... One of the things we, we painfully learned from, from last fall's election is that, is that polls are not as trustworthy as we would like to think. Hmm. But they do give us, I think, sometimes you give us a rough snapshot of, of maybe what's going on. So I did a little research, and according to the most recent Pew Research Reports I could find, over 70% of America's, Americans still identify as being Christian. But then you contrast that with a survey by the LifeWay Research and Ligonier Ministries last year that also found that 64% of Americans say that God accepts the worship of all religions. 77% say people must contribute their own effort for personal salvation. And 51% say the Bible was written for each person to interpret as he or she chooses. Obviously, we are in desperate need of clarity on exactly what the terms and conditions are for being a Christian. And the good news I have for you today is I believe that our text today provides exactly the clarity that we need. The bad news is it's likely that most people who identify as Christians would never on their life agree to the terms and the conditions that Jesus lays out in our text today. So before we get into the details of the text, I think it's always important to view the text within a larger context. So what we see earlier in this chapter, we read of Jesus performing two stunning miracles. And the chapter opens with with the second time now that Jesus feeds thousands of people with a small amount of food and the leftovers exponentially exceeding the amount they started with. But then, amazingly, later, the same day, not weeks later, not months later, the same day as they were boating away from the crowds on the Sea of Galilee, the disciples realized they forgot to bring any bread. And what did they do? they immediately began to stress over what to do I, I can just imagine jesus just just shaking his head in disbelief when he says in verse 17 why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread don't you understand or comprehend do you have hardened hearts i can just imagine the disciples at that point just kind of like you know just kind of trying to become invisible in their seats right In other words, he seems to be saying, really, guys? After all you have witnessed, you still don't know who I am, do you? But then it was shortly after this is when he asked the disciples the most important questions of all time. Who do people say that I am? And after they gave their input on that, he turned it more personally and asked the the single greatest question of all time, who do you say that I am? Now, something life-changing had to happen to Peter sometime between the feeding of the multitudes and this moment. Maybe even since he was sitting there like, oh, I don't know what we're going to do with our bread. Because this, all of a sudden, the light seemed to come on for him, and this is where he makes the most profound and truthful saying ever said. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, Jesus knew exactly what was in Peter's mind's eye when he made this statement. Of course, for Jews, the Christ of the Messiah was the one that the Jews had been anticipating for centuries. He was the one that was going to vanquish their enemies and usher them into a wonderful era of peace and prosperity. But this, of course, was not the story of redemption. So Jesus begins to to nuke their little fantasy with the reality of what was about to happen. And at the same time, he sets the stage for our text today in verse 34. In verse 31, it says, Then he began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and rise after three days. Now, clearly, this did not match the pretty little picture that they had of the Messiah. So leave it to no filter Peter to say what everyone else was thinking, right? And right after having one of the the pinnacle moments of his life, he immediately transitions to one of his worst by rebuking Jesus. Now, I I make no claims to be among the the brightest theological minds on this planet or even in this church, but I'm pretty confident that being the guy that rebukes Jesus is not the guy you ever want to be, right? Right? I mean, Peter went from being called the rock on whom Jesus would build his church to being called Satan in a matter of minutes. In verse 33, Jesus quickly lets Peter and everyone know that they were not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. And that gets us to our text today, where Jesus wants to make it crystal clear what being a follower of the Messiah actually and really looks like. Now, when I first began to study this text, I kind of like, okay, I started to imagine my outline. I kind of thought it would be like this, like a three step process to following Jesus. But then I looked at more. I, started, I quickly cut it down to two and realizing that, that denying self and taking up your cross were, were the means of following Jesus. So following Jesus is not a means of following Jesus. Denying yourself and taking up your cross were. But then the further I got into it, it began to occur to me that really taking up your cross is really just Jesus' way of communicating the extent to which he is calling us to deny ourselves. I mean, when Jesus took up his cross, he wasn't, that was, he was saying, This is how, this is the extreme that I want you to practice self denial. It's critically important to realize the importance of how Jesus prefaces the conditions of following him. If anyone wants to follow after me. Now, based on the first words of the text where Jesus calls the crowd along with his disciples, we know that anyone in this text means anyone. It, it's not just, this is not just for, he called the crowd with his disciples. This is not just for, for super Christians or guys with seminary degrees or, or the super spiritual. It's for anyone who desires to be a disciple. And then secondly, to call to follow after me means that Jesus is not asking us to do anything that he has not already done, and he's not asking us to go anywhere that he is not about to or has already gone. And therefore, to understand what Jesus means in asking us to, to deny ourselves, well, that we only have to look at how Jesus denied himself and then do what he did, right? So let's get a glimpse of this in Scripture. John 5, 19, Jesus replied, truly I tell you, the son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son likewise does these things. A few verses later in John 5:30, I can do nothing on my own. I judge only as I hear and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Matthew 26, 39, going a little farther, he fell face down and prayed, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Romans 15, two through three, each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For even Christ did not please himself. Now I could, I could give you 30 more easily. But the message is the same. And unfortunately, this doesn't line up very well with 21st century American view of self-denial. You know, for us, self-denial looks a whole lot more like maybe occasionally passing on the dessert tray at a restaurant or, or giving up a favorite food during Lent or maybe buying a four-series BMW instead of a six-series. Denying self flies in the face of the American dream that is built on indulgence, not self-denial. Treat yourself, not deny yourself, right? You Parks and Rec fans. (laughs) Furthermore, the self-denial that Jesus modeled goes, goes much deeper than just abstaining from materialism. The call of Jesus in our text is to, is to deny our very self-autonomy. And that goes against the absolute core of our sinful nature, which screams, as William Hennessy so poignantly wrote, I am the master of my faith. I am the captain of my soul. For you children of the 80s, the lyrics of Billy Joel, this is my life. Go ahead with your own life, but leave me alone. Jesus knew that self denial was not what the crowd that day had in mind either. They were a lot like the mother of James and John that we read about in Matthew 20, who starts negotiating with Jesus for his sons to be his right hand and left hand men. And reflecting what we, we see in our text today, Jesus answers her by saying, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? He's saying, look, mom, I'm I'm about to be falsely accused. I'm about to be arrested. I'm about to be mocked. I'm going to be beaten so badly, you're not going to recognize me. And then they're going to strip me naked, shove thorns in my head, and nail me to a cross. Now remind me again, which son did you want on which side? Jesus is telling him, if you want to hit your wagon to me and be my disciples, the quality of your life will indeed make a quantum leap, but not in the direction that you think. And that is why he further qualifies the meaning of deny yourself with the next statement, take up your cross. Now, this sermon series is entitled, The Hard Sayings of Jesus. And I may contend that this may be the mother of them all. I mean, we tend to gloss right over this verse because we have such a a skewed perception of the cross. For most of us, we've dumbed it down to decor or jewelry or or just a matter of inconvenience, right? I mean, we've all heard, or maybe we've said, we've been one of those people that that usually says with, with tremendous piety, when dealing with a difficult relationship or maybe a medical malady, well, this is just my cross to bear. Every time the weather changes, my joints begin to hurt. But I guess that's just my cross to bear. (laughs) I'm quite certain that that is not the picture that came to mind to those who were listening to Jesus that day. And keep in mind, he's saying this prior to his own crucifixion, but the people there were painfully aware of what crucifixion was all about. This was at the height of the Roman Empire. And the one thing Rome would not tolerate was any form of disallegiance. Crucifixion was not just about capital punishment. It was about intimidation. Everyone there that day had walked along the roads outside of Jerusalem that were lined with people being crucified. Crucifixion was designed to be completely humiliating. It was designed to dehumanize a person while inflicting a prolonged and agonizing death so that everyone would know, don't mess with Rome. From carrying their own heavy crossbar through the streets it typically weighed over 100 pounds just to humiliate them. And then they were stripped completely naked. Many of them were nailed in a way, in a position that was maximized the humiliation and the pain. It was intended to send a message. Most crucifixions dragged on for days to where each breath became became more agonizing as you desperately tried to lift your body to get a breath. Until finally you were too weak to do so and you suffocated to death. The people came face to face with the horrifying sights and the sounds of crucifixion regularly. So for Jesus to create discipleship with crucifixion had to have the most chilling effect imaginable on that crowd. I mean, Jesus was in essence saying, okay, if you really want to follow me, it's not going to come with status and riches. It's going to come with humiliation, persecution, suffering, and most likely death. And let's not forget that Jesus' call is to take up your cross indicating a voluntary willingness to endure humiliation, persecution, and pain. Which, of course, is exactly what Jesus did. John 10, John 10, 18, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own. He took up his cross. No one put it on him. So the obvious question that you, you got to ask at this point is, Why would anyone agree to this? I mean, this has to be the worst sales pitch in the history of the world, right? But fortunately, as hard as these words are to hear, Jesus doesn't leave us there. But he gives four powerfully compelling reasons why such a sacrifice is completely worth it. You see, verses 35 through 38 affirm the picture that Jesus paints in Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. Then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. When he found one priceless pearl, he went and sold everything he had and bought it. Now, in most translations, verses 35 through 38 in our text, each begin with the word for. And this means that you can read verse 34 and immediately followed by any one of the next four verses for a reason why accepting the difficult terms and conditions of being a follower of Christ are infinitely worth it. Reason number one, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. Jesus is saying, you've got a choice. You can enjoy momentary pleasure followed by eternal anguish, or you can endure in momentary affliction followed by eternal pleasure beyond your wildest imagination. Now, when you put it that way, it seems like kind of an easy choice, Right? But just like little children we tend to be slaves to the temporal pre- present, right? I mean if you offer to give a kid 10 bucks right now or 1000 bucks a year from now, they're taking the 10 just about every time, aren't they? That's the picture of the rich young ruler in Mark 10, who comes to Jesus and says, "Good teacher, what must I do to eternal life?" And Jesus eventually nets it out to him and says, "Okay, this is what you do. Go Sell all you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. But he was dismayed by this demand and he went away grieving because he had many possessions. He was unwilling to give up the temporal for the eternal. And this scene has been played out millions of times throughout history. And the sad variation of this in Western culture is the lie that we can have both. Having it all is the core of the American dream, right? Millions of Americans have been deceived into thinking that the Christian life is all benefit and no cost, that we're able to enjoy all the trappings of the American dream now and then just trade up when we die. And it's a very easy sell in our culture. But it doesn't align with Scripture. Matthew 6, 24 clearly states that you cannot serve both God and money. And he follows it with the compelling saying in in, in Matthew 7, the gate is wide and the road is broad or easy that leads to destruction. And there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life and few find it. And then we go back to our text. We also can't skim over the all-important clause in verse 35 that self-denial is only meaningful when it is for the cause of Christ or the gospel. You see, there's many people in the world doing wonderful selfless work for great humanitarian causes. But it has nothing to do with Jesus or the gospel. It's the picture we see in Matthew 7, when people appeal to Jesus based on their good works, and Jesus warns that his response will be, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. In other words, he's saying, sorry, you built your kingdom. You can't fool me. You, your works made you look good, not me. And then Jesus takes his argument a step further when he asks a rhetorical question in verse 36. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? And the answer, of course, is nothing. But Jesus makes his case by going to to unrealistic extremes. In essence, he's saying, if you could become king of the world, everything and everyone belong to you. No excess or pleasure was out of your reach. Even if you could achieve that level of wealth, how foolish would it be if the cost was eternal separation from God? I mean, that's the picture we see in Luke 12 in the parable of the rich fool who, is, who was basking in his immense kingdom of personal wealth and comfort. And Jesus says, You fool, this night your life is demanded of you, and these things that you have prepared, Whose will they be? Answer, not yours anymore. And then in verse 37 of our text, Jesus makes it clear that even if they could take it with them, that the exchange rate in heaven is zero. What can anyone give in exchange for his life? Again, the answer is nothing. Nothing. Why should we be willing to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow Jesus? Because no amount of money or influence or good deeds will be of any value after you take your last breath. The only currency that is recognized in heaven is bankruptcy. That's Jesus' message in Matthew 5, 1, the first of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is is the kingdom of heaven. Complete poverty is the only way to stand before Christ. Christ plus anything equals nothing. Christ plus nothing equals everything. And in verse 38, Jesus gives the final reason why denying ourselves is worth it at any cost because the alternative. Is catastrophic. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus nets the whole thing out by saying, you can deny yourself or you can deny me. Count the cost. There's no better picture of this than Peter prior to the crucifixion when he, when he adamantly denies knowing Christ, right? Scripture says in Luke 22 that as Jesus was, was, was being carried away to begin the road to Calvary, that Peter followed at a distance. The denial is already happening. He's following safely at a distance. And then a little while later, as we all know, he's sitting around the campfire, safely watching Jesus be beaten and falsely accused. And he's suddenly ashamed of even being associated with Jesus. As a means of self-preservation, he adamantly, cursing, he denies having any association with Christ. And just prior to this, he boldly proclaimed Jesus as the Messiah, and he vowed to follow him at whatever cost. But when the bullets started to fly, Peter was faced with the choice of denying himself or denying Christ. And he chose poorly. The picture of Peter at the crucifixion trial, make no mistake, is a picture of all of us. And that is the point of this whole message, of this whole passage. Jesus clearly tells us in John 15, 18 through 20, if the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Remember the word I spoke to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So then the grand question that's got to be kind of swimming around on our minds right now is what does denying ourselves and, and taking up our cross look like for us in 2017 in the comfortable suburbs of Houston, Texas. And the last time I checked, Highway 249 is not lined with people hanging from crosses, are they? And let's be real, we don't have a clue what being persecuted for our faith looks like. And those are blessings that are, that are, that are completely out of our control. But what should convict us Is that if we were honest with ourselves, most of our lives and our lifestyles are almost identical to those around us who are unapologetically self-indulgent? If you drop someone from who isn't from here and put them in your neighborhood and said, Okay, pick the house that's not that's that's practice self-denial, what are the odds they pick yours? Let them watch everybody for a week. So how do we live out Mark eight thirty four in our context? I think before you can answer the how, you have to answer the why. Because why, without the why, you will become one of those to whom Jesus says, I never knew you. You built your kingdom, not mine. And that is why having the right motivation and the only right motivation for abandoning our self-will is love. Love that is forged out of an authentic understanding of the gospel. See, the first step of denying self is acknowledgement of our complete bankruptcy before God. Not only is our possessions unable to earn any merit before a holy God, our good deeds and self-righteousness are equally worthless. The only way to approach God is with empty hands and turned out pockets. When When by God's grace, we see ourselves as we truly are, spiritually broke, dead in our sin, enemies of God, and slaves to our sinful desires. Then and only then does a the story of redemption become precious, supremely precious. We become humble that God for reasons beyond our imagination did not turn his back on us. But he himself left the glory of heaven to take on flesh so that he could live the perfect life that we were incapable of. And because he alone was completely innocent of sin, he alone was able to pay the penalty for our sin. Death, wrath, and separation from God. As Isaiah 53 so powerfully portrays, he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. The Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. But that, of course, is only half the story. Because praise God, we are not called to deny ourselves for a dead martyr, but a risen Christ, right? Make no mistake, Jesus didn't just come to die for our sins. He came to defiantly come back to life, to politely fold up his grave clothes and to triumphantly walk out of the tomb. And by doing so, he killed death, and he crushed the power of sin in the lives of those he came to save. He revoked the parental rights of Satan as our father, and he adopted us as children of God, brothers of Christ, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him when that story invades your soul and by grace, God's grace alone becomes your story, then there is no possession that you will not gladly sell. There is no career that you will not abandon. There is no person that you cannot love, no enemy that you can't forgive. There is no persecution that you won't gladly endure. And there is absolutely nothing that anyone can say or do to you that will make you walk away from this treasure that you have been given. You will say, like the Apostle Paul, I will share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Then, as the power of the gospel increasingly invades your heart and soul, not only will you become overwhelmed with love for your Savior, you will also become overwhelmed with love for his people. Your heart will break for those who have been annihilated by sin. It's no longer okay to simply be grateful that God has been merciful to you. You are compelled to be conduits of God's mercy to others, to relieve their suffering and point them to the one who freed you from the power of sin and death. You begin to think like Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 and Romans 9. I have made myself a slave to everyone in order to win more people. I have become all things to all people so that by every possible means save some. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the benefit of my brothers and sisters, my own flesh and blood. That is what denying yourself and taking up your cross looks like. And what I think was maybe, you know, maybe the most compelling address for all of us who attended the x 29 conference this week, Pastor Ross Lester challenged us who minister in a wealthy suburban context with these words. He said, remind your people that their homes are mission stations, outposts of hospitality, kindness and grace in increasingly hostile and post-Christian contexts. Remind them that their jobs are missionary assignments. Send them as missionaries with purpose into those spaces. Remind them that their money is mission ammunition. Show them how their money can blow big holes in the gates of hell. Call your people to sacrifice, to serve, to risk, to resist, to be foreigners and aliens and freaks of holiness and humility. Redeemer family, we must be willing to examine our lives and honestly assess whose kingdom we are really building. And beware, it may result in some radical changes. For some, it may mean making drastic changes to how you live your life right here for the sake of the gospel And for some, it could literally mean selling everything and moving to another part of the world to give your life to sharing the gospel with people who have never heard it. While we were in Nashville this week, we met with our newest missionary partner, partner Dave Furman, who serves as a church planner in Dubai. He told us how they desperately need more people who are willing to come to the Middle East to assist church planners and share the gospel throughout the Arab Peninsula the Arab Peninsula. We learned at the conference this week that the newest, that the, that the newest region, they just opened a, a region for the Middle East of Acts 29 churches. A place we, we assume is the most hostile to the, go- to, to the gospel. We are currently in the early stages of organizing a plan to create a team from Redeemer to move to Turkey in 2020 to plant a church and share the gospel in a country that is less than 1% Christian. If that happens, that would mean some of you listening to me right now may soon find yourself in a place where taking up your cross could take on a far more literal meaning. Are you willing to take denying yourself that seriously? Trust me, I am asking myself that very question. Are you so compelled by the gospel that you are willing to say, like martyred missionary Jim Elliot, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose? Or like missionary to Iraq, Karen Watson, who left the letter to be opened only in the case of her being martyred, which she was in 2004. And part of her letter read, I wasn't called to a place. I was called to him. To obey was my objective. To suffer was expected. His glory was my reward. His glory is my reward. Francis Chan has said, our greatest fear in life should not be failure, but succeeding in the things that don't matter. So I have to ask, What is it that you're succeeding at in life? Our church vision statement is to make the real gospel recognizable in Tomball and beyond. This is how we accomplish that. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Let's pray. Thank you for listening. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org.